0: Section 18 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 3 of the Foundation of Our Judgments Concerning Our Own Sentiments and Conduct, and of the Sense of Duty, consisting of one section. Chapter 4 Of the nature of self-deceit and of the origin and use of general rules in order to pervert the rectitude of our own judgments concerning the propriety of our own conduct it is not always necessary that the real and impartial spectator should be at a great distance when he is at hand when he is present the violence and injustice of our own selfish passions are sometimes sufficient to induce the man within the breast to make a report very different from what the real circumstances of the case are capable of authorizing there are two different occasions upon which we examine our own conduct and endeavor to view it in the light in which the impartial spectator would view it first when we are about to act and secondly after we have acted our views are apt to be very partial in both cases but they are apt to be most partial when it is of most importance that they should be otherwise when we are about to act The eagerness of passion will seldom allow us to consider what we are doing, with the candor of an indifferent person. The violent emotions which at the time agitate us discolor our views of things, even when we are endeavoring to place ourselves in the situation of another, and to regard the objects that interest us in the light in which they will naturally appear to him. The fury of our own passions constantly calls us back to our own place, where everything appears magnified and misrepresented by self-love." of the manner in which those objects would appear to another of the view which he would take of them we can obtain if i may say so but instantaneous glimpses which vanish in a moment and which even while they last are not altogether just we cannot even for that moment divest ourselves entirely of the heat and keenness with which our peculiar situation inspires us nor consider what we are about to do with the complete impartiality of an equitable judge the passions upon this account as father malabranc says all justify themselves and seem reasonable in proportion to their objects as long as we continue to feel them when the action is over indeed and the passions which prompted it have subsided we can enter more coolly into the sentiments of the indifferent spectator what before interested us is now become almost as indifferent to us as it always was to him and we can now examine our own conduct with his candour and impartiality the man of to-day is no longer agitated by the same passions which distracted the man of yesterday and when the paroxysm of emotion in the same manner as when the paroxysm of distress is fairly over we can identify ourselves as it were with the ideal man within the breast and in our own character view as in the one case our own situation so in the other our own conduct with the severe eyes of the most impartial spectator but our judgments now are often of little importance in comparison of what they were before and can frequently produce nothing but vain regret and unavailing repentance without always securing us from the like errors in time to come it is seldom however that they are quite candid even in this case the opinion which we entertain of our own character depends entirely on our judgments concerning our past conduct it is so disagreeable to think ill of ourselves that we often purposely turn away our view from those circumstances which might render that judgment unfavourable he is a bold surgeon they say whose hand does not tremble when he performs an operation upon his own person and he is often equally bold who does not hesitate to pull off the mysterious veil of self-delusion which covers from his view the deformities of his own conduct rather than see our own behaviour under so disagreeable an aspect we too often foolishly and weakly endeavor to exasperate anew those unjust passions which had formerly misled us we endeavor by artifice to awaken our old hatreds and irritate afresh our most forgotten resentments we even exert ourselves for this miserable purpose and thus persevere in injustice merely because we were once unjust and because we are ashamed and afraid to see that we were so so partial are the views of mankind with regard to the propriety of their own conduct both at the time of action and after it, and so difficult is it for them to view it in the light in which any indifferent spectator would consider it. But if it was by a peculiar faculty, such as the moral sense is supposed to be, that they judged of their own conduct, if they were imbued with a particular power of perception which distinguished the beauty or deformity of passions and affections, as their own passions would be more immediately exposed to the view of this faculty, it would judge with more accuracy concerning them, than concerning those of other men of which it had only a more distant prospect this self-deceit this fatal weakness of mankind is the source of half the disorders of human life if we saw ourselves in the light in which others see us or in which they would see us if they knew all a reformation would generally be unavoidable we could not otherwise endure the sight nature however has not left this weakness which is of so much importance altogether without a remedy nor has she abandoned us entirely to the delusions of self-love our continual observations upon the conduct of others insensibly lead us to form to ourselves certain general rules concerning what is fit and proper either to be done or to be avoided some of their actions shock all our natural sentiments we hear everybody about us express the like detestation against them this still further confirms and even exasperates our natural sense of their deformity it satisfies us that we view them in the proper light when we see other people view them in the same light we resolve never to be guilty of the like nor ever upon any account to render ourselves in this manner the objects of universal disapprobation we thus naturally lay down to ourselves a general rule that all such actions are to be avoided as tending to render us odious contemptible or punishable the objects of all those sentiments for which we have the greatest dread and aversion other actions on the contrary call forth our approbation and we hear everybody around us express the same favourable opinion concerning them everybody is eager to honour and reward them they excite all those sentiments for which we have by nature the strongest desire the love the gratitude the admiration of mankind we become ambitious of performing the like and thus naturally lay down to ourselves a rule of another kind that every opportunity of acting in this manner is carefully to be sought after. It is thus that the general rules of morality are formed. They are ultimately founded upon experience of what, in particular instances, our moral faculties, our natural sense of merit and propriety, approve or disapprove of. We do not originally approve or condemn particular actions, because, upon examination, they appear to be agreeable or inconsistent with the general rule. The general rule, on the contrary, is formed by finding from experience that all actions of a certain kind or circumstanced in a certain manner are approved or disapproved of to the man who first saw an inhuman murder committed from avarice envy or unjust resentment and upon one too that loved and trusted the murderer who beheld the last agonies of the dying person who heard him with his expiring breath complain more of the perfidy and ingratitude of his false friend than of the violence which had been done to him There could be no occasion, in order to conceive how horrible such an action was, that he should reflect that one of the most sacred rules of conduct was what prohibited the taking away the life of an innocent person, that this was a plain violation of that rule, and consequently a very blamable action. His detestation of this crime, it is evident, would arise instantaneously and antecedent to his having formed to himself any such general rule. The general rule, on the contrary, which he might afterwards form, would be founded upon the detestation which he felt necessarily arise in his own breast, at the thought of this, and every other particular action of the same kind. When we read in history or romance the account of actions either of generosity or of baseness, the admiration which we conceive for the one, and the contempt which we feel for the other, neither of them arise from reflecting that there are certain general rules which declare all actions of the one kind admirable and all actions of the other contemptible. Those general rules, on the contrary, are all formed from the experience we have had of the effects which actions of all different kinds naturally produce upon us. An amiable action, a respectable action, and horrid action are all of them actions which naturally excite for the person who performs them the love, the respect, or the horror of the spectator." the general rules which determine what actions are and what are not the objects of each of those sentiments can be formed no other way than by observing what actions actually and in fact excite them when these general rules indeed have been formed when they are universally acknowledged and established by the concurring sentiments of mankind we frequently appeal to them as to the standards of judgment in debating concerning the degree of praise or blame that is due to certain actions of a complicated and dubious nature they are upon these occasions commonly cited as the ultimate foundations of what is just and unjust in human conduct and this circumstance seems to have misled several very eminent authors to draw up their systems in such a manner as if they had supposed that the original judgments of mankind with regard to right and wrong were formed like the decisions of a court of judicatory by considering first the general rule and then secondly whether the particular action under consideration fell properly within its comprehension. Those general rules of conduct, when they have been fixed in our mind by habitual reflection, are of great use in correcting the misrepresentations of self-love concerning what is fit and proper to be done in our particular situation. The man of furious resentment, if he was to listen to the dictates of that passion, would perhaps regard the death of his enemy as but a small compensation for the wrong he imagines he has received, which, however, may be no more than a very slight provocation. But his observations upon the conduct of others have taught him how horrible all such sanguinary revenges appear. Unless his education has been very singular, he has laid it down to himself as an inviolable rule, to abstain from them upon all occasions. This rule preserves its authority with him, and renders him incapable of being guilty of such a violence. Yet the fury of his own temper may be such that had this been the first time in which he considered such an action he would undoubtedly have determined it to be quite just and proper and what every impartial spectator would approve of but that reverence for the rule which past experience has impressed upon him checks the impetuosity of his passion and helps him to correct the two partial views which self-love might otherwise suggest of what was proper to be done in his situation if he should allow himself to be so far transported by passion as to violate this rule yet even in this case he cannot throw off altogether the awe and respect with which he has been accustomed to regard it at the very time of acting at the moment in which passion mounts the highest he hesitates and trembles at the thought of what he is about to do he is secretly conscious to himself that he is breaking through those measures of conduct which in all his cool hours he had resolved never to infringe which he had never seen infringed by others without the highest disapprobation and of which the infringement his own mind forebodes, must soon render him the object of the same disagreeable sentiments. Before he can take the last fatal resolution, he is tormented with all the agonies of doubt and uncertainty. He is terrified at the thought of violating so sacred a rule, and at the same time is urged and goaded on by the fury of his desires to violate it. He changes his purpose every moment. Sometimes he resolves to adhere to his principle, and not indulge a passion which may corrupt the remaining part of his life with the horrors of shame and repentance and a momentary calm takes possession of his breast from the prospect of that security and tranquillity which he will enjoy when he thus determines not to expose himself to the hazard of a contrary conduct but he immediately the passion rouses anew and with fresh fury drives him on to commit what he had the instant before resolved to abstain from wearied and distracted with those continual irresolutions he at length from a sort of despair makes the last fatal and irrecoverable step but with that terror and amazement with which one flying from an enemy throws himself over a precipice where he is sure of meeting with more certain destruction than from anything that pursues him from behind such are his sentiments even at the time of acting though he is then no doubt less sensible of the impropriety of his own conduct than afterwards when his passion being gratified and palled, he begins to view what he has done in the light in which others are apt to view it, and actually feels what he had only foreseen very imperfectly before. The stings of remorse and repentance begin to agitate and torment him. End of section 18.